Welcome to Breaking the Cycle of Poverty featuring Jay Height, Executive Director of Shepherd Community Center in Indianapolis. My name is Tim Swearens, and I'm your host for these conversations that explore why poverty remains such a persistent problem in the United States. On this episode, Shepherd Assistant Director Tim Street joins us to discuss key lessons he's learned after more than 25 years of serving in urban ministry. Jay, would, would you introduce Tim to our audience and perhaps share what stands out for you when you think about Tim's service and ministry? Well, I affectionately called Tim the professor because he's a teacher and he's a master teacher uh, as he is finishing up his doctorate and is able to uh, have those letters with his name. Yes. Uh, I think what's most important is his life it has uh, and his life experience. Uh, I'm proud to say he's a colleague. I am learned a lot from him and continue to learn and I think it is an important part of what Shepherd wants to do is to help others break the cycle of poverty. And Tim is instrumental in leading that effort for us as we train businesses, not-for-profits, churches, uh, hospitals in this important work of uh, breaking the cycle of poverty. Yes. Tim, thank you for joining us today. What what propelled or perhaps compelled you to begin to serve in urban ministry all those years ago? Well, that really, <clears throat> excuse me, that really all comes down to my personal story, uh, my personal testimony. Uh, when I was uh, um, a young man, you know, we moved around a lot as a child. My dad was a chaplain in the army, so we moved every couple of, of years. And uh, we were stationed uh, here in Indianapolis. And uh, one night in the winter of 1978, um, that was, a, of course, a snowy winter. Everybody remembers the stories of the blizzard and everything. Yes. Uh, my father and I were out shoveling uh, snow in our driveway, and uh, we were held up at gunpoint, and my father was murdered in the, uh, uh, in the robbery. And um, the, uh, the story of the next 20 years takes a few hours to tell. Uh, we don't have that kind of time, uh, obviously, now. But, but God used a number of experiences over the course of the next uh, 15 to 20 years to uh, first, uh, you know, that meant a recommitment to the Lord after college uh, and then eventually entering seminary and then a number of experiences while in seminary that uh, began, uh, I began to feel called to, uh, to the city. Uh, called to uh, Ministry of Racial Reconciliation. The three men that participated in the robbery that night were all black. Yes. Um, they were also from the inner city. And, um, and, and eventually God just used those experiences, uh, which led me to eventually go to the prison to visit a couple of them and, and forgive them. And, and one of them became a good friend. Uh, after he got out, he was the driver of the car. He wasn't present there during the murder. Uh, but uh, he got out after 20 years, and uh, and he actually worked uh, for Shepherd in the ministry for a while. And he's uh, one of my dear friends. But God used uh, you know that experience and so many others uh, to to just place His stamp upon me. Um, uh, that uh, that uh, to 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 do ministry in the city, to do ministry among people in poverty, uh, and particularly early on in my career, uh, believing that my real goal was to help kids like they had been. So. Yes. Jay referred to you as the professor. You do a lot of teaching and training in, in poverty. What are some common misconceptions that people have about poverty in the United States? Well, I think probably the biggest misperception that we deal with uh, in our teaching and you know, among our volunteers, among our partners, 
Um, and, and when I'm out teaching at other places, I think the single most common misconception is that poverty is about mo- uh, a lack of money. And, and I can simply define poverty as a lack of money. You know, we know uh, that it's so much more than just a lack of money. There are so many things uh, that people who grow up in generational poverty lack that people who grow up in generational middle class possess. Um, and uh, in their book, uh, When Helping Hurts, Corbett and Fickert uh, talk about uh, the reality that the diagnosis shapes the prescription. So the way we go about diagnosing a problem determines, obviously, the prescription that we use to address it. And, uh, and, and if, so if we think of poverty simply as a lack of money, uh, then that's an easy fix. All we have to do is give people money. And, you know, and that's, in fact, what a lot of government work on the issue of poverty alleviation has really been all about. And, and we know that we've been waging the official war on poverty since – I think 1964, maybe Lyndon Johnson so. declared it uh, State of the Union address in '64. Uh, so we've been we've been dealing with it for a long time, and uh, and we really haven't made much of a big dent. Uh, and so we know that giving people uh, money simply doesn't uh, solve the problem. Uh, the second thing I would say is probably uh, a mis- misperception, uh, particularly in some of the circles I run in, is that it's about race, uh, that it's a minority problem. Uh, I remember I've had a lot of conversations with year, with people over the years. Um, yeah, one one gentleman in particular that I used to uh, uh, I used to have a lot of uh, uh, lively conversations with. Let's call him that. And uh, and I remember one time talking, saying, telling him that there were more white people on public assistance than black people, and he refused to believe that. And I you know I even got out the statistics, and in the world of of uh, of uh, misinformation in the yes. news, he refused to believe that these statistics he was seeing uh, from the government websites about who was getting welfare benefits were true because he just couldn't believe more white people got welfare than black people. Um, you know, uh, and it's true there are more white people on assistance than black people. Now, the percentage of white people on assistance is lower, so there's there is an issue there. Uh, but it's not ju- you know poverty is colorblind; it affects all races. Uh, and and I think the third uh, the third sort of uh, thing we, we really deal with is um, uh, is that we're really focused on and helping people like uh, you know sort of achieve upward mobility. Uh, in breaking the cycle of poverty. We have a phrase we use here at Shepherd called upward stability. And and I think, uh, you know, for people, um, when, the, when they get to the point where they realize it really is about helping people become more stable uh, and not about helping them increase their income, uh, they begin to see why Shepherd does things the way we do because, uh, you know, uh, it, it, Income is a, is a lagging indicator of stability, not the other way around. Income doesn't produce stability. Stability ultimately ends up producing more income. And I think those are probably the three things that we uh, we deal with, uh, the three misconceptions we deal with the most. You've, you've led Shepherd's Poverty 101 class for, for a number of years. Explain a little bit about the purpose of that class and, and maybe some key takeaways that people have told you, people have gone to the class, what they've told you over the years. Yeah, well, almost everything that we do in our educational outreach here at Shepherd is is designed to help people better understand the context of, uh, of poverty, uh, better understand the context of the urban environment, 
and, and, and how people and the mindset of people who grow up in poverty and who grow up in the urban environment because we say that it's all about relationship. No significant learning, no significant growth happens outside of a relationship. And so we have to become really good at developing relationships uh, with people who are vastly different than, than us, e even though you know, we may have grown up just a couple of miles from one another. Um, and so it's all geared towards helping people better understand that context. Um, and, uh, but I think there's sort of two, two types of people who take the class. I think the first group is people who, you know, sometimes I'll be training a staff of an organization that deals a lot with the issue of poverty. Um, and, uh, and the feedback we get there is that, well, you know, I've never had anybody say I didn't learn anything in Poverty 101, but I've had a lot of people say the biggest thing I learned was uh, you've given me a framework to sort of file and even articulate the information that I already knew. You know, and I think that's one of my personal spiritual gifts is just articulating things, complex issues in a, in, in a way that, uh, that really boil down to, you know, very pragmatic in very pragmatic ways, you know, and sort of bridge that gap between the academic and the practitioner. But then the second, big, the biggest group of people we have, obviously, are people who don't understand poverty, never been exposed to it themselves. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and I think the biggest uh, feedback we get from them is that, well, I think not only did I learn a lot about, you know, the lives of people who grow up in poverty and generational poverty, but I learned about myself a little bit. You know, we, uh, you know, if it's going to be about developing relationships, if we're going to understand why somebody might think differently than we do, uh, we have to first understand why do I think the way that I do? What are my basic life assumptions? And uh, we do this exercise called the, I like to call the stained glass window exercise, which is about articulating our worldview and 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 you know this filter that we we interpret the world around us with, and it's built and our filter is is made up of all of our life experiences. Mm -hmm. And if we have vastly different life experiences from somebody who grew up just a few miles down the road, we think very differently than they do. And so one of the great feedbacks is, you know, this class isn't just about teaching me who they are. This class really holds up a mirror to who I am. And I, I have a better understanding of myself and where I come from. And, and I've had people say, you know, you help me understand my parents because one parent, my dad came out of poverty and my mom came out of upper middle class and you know I kind of more I better understand uh, their relationship I better understand the fights that they had and, and that sort of thing and um, and then I think the second thing it kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier that it's about more than money especially when we get into the programming model here at Shepherd and we deal with we begin to deal with the 10 assets and they begin to see uh, why organizations like Shepherd are not just about helping people increase their income. So. I, I think an important benefit is our neighbors are served better because of this training. <clears throat> An example was a hospital chain here in uh, Indianapolis had a series of clinics. Their leadership team went through that. And what they realized is that people in poverty tend to think in the moment. Mm -hmm. They're not thinking long term. They had 70% of their appointments were planned and 30% were same day. After going through the training and beginning to understand the mindset of our neighbors, they switched that. And so now they have a greater uh, percentage of folks showing for their appointments 
and our neighbors are being better served because they have better access. And so I think those are some of the benefits that help um, systemically educate those in power, those in the, the systems that have to serve our neighbors better understand them. Tim, you, you mentioned uh, President Johnson and the War on Poverty uh, back in the 1960s. Um, you, you've, been, you've been blessed to have uh, years of experience uh, working on this set of issues. Does poverty, urban poverty, look the same in 2023 as it did 20 years ago, or are we facing a new set of challenges? Well, I think it's – I mean, I think, you know, when it comes to a family – uh, living in our neighborhood, living in poverty, the issues that they're dealing with are very similar, uh, are really the same, uh, which is a lack of access to decent jobs and, and decent transportation and other things like that. But I think the biggest thing is there's been a demographic shift in our society. I mean, in 2013, uh, the first time that, uh, you know, in the first year since we've been keeping these records, poverty grew faster in the suburbs than it did in the city. Uh, and that has con stayed fairly consistent. The same year, uh, in 2013, in 48 out of the 50 largest uh, metropolitan areas in the United States, there was more infill development than outfill. In other words, more new housing starts mm. in the urban core than on the, in the suburbs. In other words, we're, you know, the, the, we used, as a matter of fact, we used to talk about you know, the poor as living in an urban environment, but you know, th that, that whole term urban has changed so much in the last 20 years as the urban core becomes the healthier place and particularly as younger generation move in there and see that as their future. And so poverty gets, continues to be pushed out a little bit. And I think um, uh, this, you know, we, we get feedback from churches uh, that we're partnered with in the suburbs that they're seeing more and more poverty. Mm -hmm. and, and the problem with that is that the infrastructure to serve the poor is pretty much all concentrated in the old inner city. Yes, uh, I live in a rural environment now, and you know, down near closer to Louisville, and I, you know, I come back and forth to Indianapolis as I'm studying down there. Uh, but in the rural environment down, that I live in down there, it's the poorest county in Indiana. There's almost no infrastructure whatsoever to provide services to people in poverty. Um, and, you know, the, the food bank in, in the community is just run by a couple of teachers who are volunteers. There's very little money to support it, and, you know, and, and the nearest uh, Feeding America food bank is, you know, an hour and a half away. And, and so uh, there's less infrastructure to serve uh, people in poverty the farther out of the city they get pushed. Uh, and so I think that, uh, that demographic shift has, uh, has changed things. But I also think, you know, statistically, the wealth gap continues to grow. Yes. And I, so I think uh, deep poverty is becming more and more entrenched and, uh, and is going to be more and more difficult to break. Um, and, um, you know, and, and if we look historically, you know, the, the traditional path out of generational poverty – uh, really is a multi-generational path. The first generation uh, out of poverty usually gets there through the through having a job that paid a living wage but did not require a college degree, uh, usually in manufacturing or something like that. Um, and then the second generation, they sent their kids to college, and they became teachers and you know accountants and people like that. And then the third generation, you know, they sent their kids to grad school and they became the doctors and the lawyers. And so we see this upward progression over time, uh, over generations. 
the number of jobs that exist in our society that pay a decent living wage, enough to own a home and send your kids to college, the number of those jobs that exist in our society continues to decline. And so the path out of poverty becomes as time passes, becomes more and more difficult. And so this, the challenges faced like an, by an organization like Shepherd is that we have to really go from really generational poverty to college degree in one generation in order to break, to really break right. the cycle of poverty, or at least sometime advanced training. I think, you know, I think we're beginning to understand that the trades and things like that are a path uh, that we can get our kids on. But, uh, but it, it becomes harder and harder. And I think Sort of sociologically, I think one of the biggest things that we're facing, and, and I think we're going to see this in the next few years, is the younger generation, even those who grew up middle class, uh, are probably, you know, they, they've said this before, I think, but I'm seeing it personally. The younger generation is the first generation, even those who grew up middle class, who believe they're not going to do as well as their parents, mm -hmm. much less better. And, and I think it's harder and harder for kids who are growing up who don't see their gr great economic prospects for themselves to really care, you know, mm -hmm. about uh, society and others when, you know, you know they just want to improve their own lot. And, and, uh, and it's harder and harder, I think, to get them to begin to feel compassionate about uh, sharing and, and, uh, and donating and, and giving and, and, and working to help others. Uh, and so I think in the next 20 years, we're going to see probably some effects from that. I, I think one of the challenges is that for many of our folks, they'll say the path out is, is employment. We have this artificial employment uh, situation right now hmm. where folks are making decent money at fast food restaurants or in the service industry. And the reality is that's going to change in the next year or two. It's, it's sort of like cotton candy. It, it tastes good, but there's no substance because robots are going to fill those jobs. And we're trying to tell our folks, you got to continue on. Uh, the state uses the ABC, A job, B better job career. Let's keep that progression going because the environment will change and it will change dramatically. Uh, for most of our neighbors. You're talking about the sustainability that Tim mentioned earlier, right? You have to, those jobs aren't going to be there forever. You have to prepare for the future. Jay, this is the moment you've been waiting for. Do you have a question you'd like to pose to Tim? Uh, I think it's going to go similar to this last question. What is it that, that Shepard should be thinking about for five years from now? Mm. <laughs> Uh, that's a good question. Um, I think um, I think Shepard is probably on the right track when it comes uh, one on focusing on the ten assets, but but two also with the E two E, the you know, education to employment, and really helping people make that transition from education to employment uh, and to the type of employment that pays a living wage. Um, I think um, as, a, as an organization like Shepherd grows and matures and gets older, um, we can do more things, but we can't, still can't do everything. And I think it's really f it's important f to continue to focus on what we do well and, and uh, sort of better flesh out that continuum of care and make, make the top end that, you know, the high school graduate into decent career – as uh, as effective 
as as the lower end, and by lower end I mean younger aid, and you know the academy and things are doing great stuff. Can we put the resources into helping them transition from our academy into a, a, a high school outside of Shepherd, and then into employment, whether whether that means a four year college degree or a trade or something like that? And so I think I, I think as Shepherd matures fleshing out and and you know and and providing the resources for that continuum uh, which which is a great you know a great model um, but as our kids age you know we're going to have to put more and more resources into that upper those upper ages i think yeah. jay would you pray for us as we begin to wrap up this episode yeah. father god this is about you and your work of redemption of love for the city and for those who we engage with in all facets of our life. As Tim has said, we want to be faithful to serving them in the best way possible, to help them grow their assets, to help them be able to move forward and recognize and live in to the prophet, that, uh, what the prophet Jeremiah said, I know the plans I have for you, plans for you to succeed and prosper when we seek after God with our whole heart. And may we be faithful to that task, to helping them continue to grow and to move forward. We love you. Thank you for the lives of so many people who impact a place called Shepherd Community. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thank you, Jay. Thank you, Tim, for for joining us today. And and the next episode, we're going to talk about the 10 assets. Um, And uh, please Audience, please come back and join us for that. Uh, you are the sort of the architect of those assets, if I if I remember. Uh, well, I think I was the first to write them down, but uh, yes. you know, I uh, I didn't come up with them on, in a vacuum. So sure, yeah, sure. Uh, for 37 years, Shepherd Community has made a, a lasting difference in the lives of thousands and thousands of neighbors, and the Shepherd team couldn't do that work without the support of donors, partners, and volunteers. To learn more about how you can help, please visit shepherdcommunity.org. Thank you for listening. Thank you.